Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Hey, I'm Ryan. I'm a Christian, and this is my story. Growing up, I never missed going to church. When I was 12, I accepted Christ as my Savior. I, I was even baptized. It undoubtedly was a very important decision. It even affected how I lived in high school. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I had fun on the weekends. I had a girlfriend, a couple, but I was a normal high school kid. College was one big blur, but I did make it to church out of obedience. And after school, I married a great girl. And she's been a great influence on me. Life's been good. I have a house, three kids. I couldn't ask for more. I mean, sure, I worry about my future. I mean, my marriage, it could be better. And I need to spend more time with my kids. But, but things will be all right. I have my faith. You may not hear me talk about it a lot, but that's... It's just because it's personal. But don't worry for me. My Jesus is real. Well, I want to welcome you to Liquid. If it's your first time, we are a Christian church supposedly filled with people whose faith in Jesus Christ is central to their lives. And I say that word supposedly Because as that little video highlights, sometimes our actions, our daily lives, don't quite match with the faith that we actually claim is central to our lives. I mean, for all the songs we sing about how great God is, how important He is to our lives, sometimes, honestly, I wonder. I wonder sometimes if my faith, if your faith, doesn't revolve more around a plastic Jesus. That is a faith that's synthetic. It has, it has the appearance of, of Christianity, but that's kind of on the surface. It's virtually indistinguishable from the lives of non-Christians if you dig a little deeper. I mean, how would you describe your faith? Would you say it is vibrant and real and alive and electric? Or actually, is it small and synthetic? Maybe just a token expression of the life God designed you for. Maybe you give a token nod to Jesus on Sunday for about an hour. But the rest of your week, your life is really indistinguishable from the average guy on the street. For instance, instead of living uh, with, with a sense of conviction, you compromise on a regular basis. Instead of experiencing regular victory in your struggle against sin, you actually experience mainly defeat. That's what you know. And instead of this living, breathing spirit of the living God at work in you, well, you've, you've got a plastic Jesus a powerless token faith instead of one that is actually supercharged by the power of God inside of you. Synthetic or supernatural, how would you describe your faith? I want to invite you to actually open up your Bible to Romans chapter 8. This is part 4 of our series, Wild Goose Chase. Wild Goose Chase. Wild Goose Chase. Which is really all about what it means to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Celtic Christians called the Holy Spirit the wild goose, Anged Glas. But I want to get at something today that I'm praying is going to open this up for for many of you because I have no condemnation for you if you're struggling or if your faith at this moment is small, except to say this, um, 
there's more. There's more. God longs to give you more. More of his spirit, more regular victory in your battles against sin, more freedom and actually aliveness than you're probably settling for right now. But here's the deal. Here's the secret. It doesn't come through feeling guilty or trying harder. It is a gift of the living spirit of God in you. There's nothing plastic about it. You can't force it. Our main verse to today is actually Romans 8, the first two verses. Take a look at it. It reads this. It says, Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And here the Apostle Paul is giving an interesting picture here. He actually says, basically, there are like these two laws that are always at work inside every person. First, there's the law of sin and death, right? Spiritual death, we are naturally separated from the life of God. That's our natural default. We live life on our own terms, not God's, although it feels like freedom. The Bible says it's going to lead to a train wreck. It's going to lead to spiritual death. And the Bible says we all have these things that, like, enslave us. If you're not a Christian, you probably call it a bad habit. Well, I overwork. I, uh, I look at porn. I ignore my kids. If you are a Christian, you may acknowledge, you know what, that's actually sin. I overwork because that's actually an idol. I consider it more important than anything else. And that's actually why I ignore my kids. I don't have time for them or, or for God, honestly. And that's why I look at porn, to relieve the stress and numb out because I work so much and neglect my family. And round and round it goes in a cycle. That's how this one law works. Sin feeds on itself to keep our lives grounded and kind of stuck. There's the appearance of movement. We go through the motions, but we don't actually go anywhere. Again, non-Christians would call this a rut, but the Bible actually calls it death. You're alive, but you're dying inside. But there's another law, Paul says. Those who are in Christ Jesus follow. It's the law of the spirit of what's the word? Life, where we actually begin dying to our old life of sin and becoming alive to God. And it's supposed to make the Christian life qualitatively different. You begin actually being filled with things that aren't you. You're not a kind person, but you begin experiencing more patience, more loving kindness towards people. You are undisciplined, but you start experiencing self-control. I can't do this myself, but I actually, we call them the fruits of the spirit. Here's the weird part. If you've ever noticed this, I'll just call this out, Christians seem to struggle just as much, if not more, than non-believers with deadness or sin in their life. A recent survey by George Barna, he's a research kind of organization, revealed that the life of people identifying themselves as followers of Jesus is virtually indistinguishable from non-believers in almost every category of moral behavior. For instance, the divorce rate among Christians is actually just the same. It's a mirror image of the national average. Uh, Viewing of pornography is actually the same as about the general public, except it's higher at hotels that hold Christian conventions. That's actually true. Because most Christians try to keep it in and contain it and manage it, and then all of a sudden, the minute they get out of their house where they might get caught or anything, boom, it like explodes. It goes to the roof. It's amazing. Attitudes towards materialism, the same. Most surprising, a sense of happiness or contentment in life, which you figure would be a lot higher for Christians, is actually only more than 10 or 20% greater than in non-believers. Research consistently shows that most Christians live lives that are indistinguishable from non-believers in their attitudes and behavior. And, And I'm like, why is that? Why, instead of being indistinguishable from the rest of the world, there's supposed to be this unmistakable evidence of God's Spirit in us, and yet for many of us, just honestly, 
there's not a lot of it. Is it because we worship a, a plastic Jesus? What's at work here? That's what Paul's getting at here in Romans. He's saying inside of every believer, there's this tension between two laws at work in you. He says, through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. This law of the spirit of life, it's supposed to free us to actually live differently. It's like it's this higher law that enables us to kind of soar above our natural, fleshly, sinful impulses and actually bear fruit. But it's like, well, I get that, but how does that happen if these two laws are kind of duking it out? I want you to think of it this way. It's like what happens with an airplane. Back this past spring, Colleen and I took a trip to Africa to see the clean water wells uh, our, our church has built there, and we flew JFK to Dubai on an Emirates A380. It is a massive Airbus. I don't know if you have ever seen this plane. It's absolutely incredible. It is like a flying hotel. It seats up to 800 people. It weighs 580 tons. It is a double-decker. You can see it actually has spa and showers on the upper uh, up, up board there. We didn't sit there. We sat, of course, in the back in coach. But it's double-decker, four engines, two on each wing. You see it flying here about 40,000 feet. And the fact that this bad boy gets off the ground is a phenomenon because there's a little law called the law of gravity. And this massive Airbus that's almost 600 tons ain't nothing natural about getting this thing up in the air. But airplanes don't obey the law of gravity, do they? Why? Because the law of gravity actually gets transcended by something else at liftoff. It's called the law of aerodynamics. When you take an object of a certain size and apply a certain thrust to it at a certain speed, you get a certain lift. And when that thrust is more powerful than the law of gravity, the results are amazing. I found this footage, actually, of a similar big boy taking off. Take a look at this thing. This is incredible. This is, yeah, this is a, look at this big boy. This is from Bangladesh. You want to see? We went up the air tower and just recorded that. You want to see the law of aerodynamics override the law of gravity? This is what 70,000 pounds of thrust is like. This is what it looks like and it feels like to override the law of gravity. you are very nervous right now. That's supposed to be a picture of the Christian life, where the law of the spirit of life literally overtakes the law of sin and death, and the thrust of God is so powerful in our life that we actually are able to live on a higher plane. That's what Paul's getting at here. He's like, when the spirit takes over, he doesn't cancel out the law of sin and death. That's still in our lives and sin still tries to do its thing. But the spirit actually now overrides that law with a new law. It's a higher law. It's a more powerful law, the law of the spirit that enables us to soar. So if you are in Christ Jesus, you in many ways are free to fly. You are cleared for takeoff. And you're like, so what's the problem? Because if the Christian life is supposed to be so empowered and so elevated and free, then why are so many of us kind of stuck on the tarmac, peering out the window? You know the answer? It's very easy. The problem is 
you have rats on board. I'm serious. In the early days of aviation, a guy named Frederick Page of England actually was one of the pioneers of, of the planes. And, and one time he was flying alone over the Atlantic in one of the test planes when he heard a gnawing sound behind him in the cargo area. And as he looked back from the pilot's seat, he saw rats chewing on the, on the control cables in his plane. You talk about disaster in the making. The problem was this was in the early days before autopilot, so he couldn't leave the controls and go back to kill the rats. So it's like, what does he do? So you know what he did? He took the plane higher, 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet, 3,000 feet, and as he increased the altitude, the gnawing sound got fainter and fainter until eventually it stopped. And when he landed, he looked back, safely actually, he looked back and saw, sure enough, these rats laying there dead. What happened? Ingenious. Because he flew at a higher altitude, he decreased the oxygen supply and he literally suffocated those rats. He killed the rats aboard his plane whose sabotage would have brought it down. And I've got news for you. Although you have been designed to fly, you have rats on board. <laughs> Literally. That's what the sin nature is. That's that thing that gnaws at you. That's sabotaging you, trying to bring you down and destroy you. And if you have rats on board, the first step, honestly, to, to, to killing them is to literally fly higher. You actually have to take your thinking upward to a whole new level. That's what Romans 8 is all about. You'll see it titled here. It says, Life Through the Spirit. And if you look at verses 5 and 8, through 8 in here, look what, he, look what Paul writes. He says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their what? Have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their what? Minds set on what the Spirit desires. So the battle starts where? In the mind, says Paul. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. They have very different outcomes. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then verse 8, he says this, those controlled by the sinful nature, they can't please God. The idea is that our natural self, that's our sin nature, is at war at all times with what God's Spirit is trying to do in us. And the battle begins where? Right up here in the head our thinking. And we have to elevate our thinking, Paul says, and actually set our minds on what the Spirit desires first. Now to go higher literally means we have to understand what God thinks about our flesh, which is basically, it's a train wreck. <laughs> it's total. It's beyond repair. You and I, left under our own strength, we're doomed because the flesh in God's mind, it's like unfixable. So if you take like the average Christian who struggles with sin, maybe struggles with uh, lustful thoughts, or maybe you struggle with being you know, loving towards your spouse or your family, maybe you have a critical tongue, or you don't have compassion for others who aren't like you, or maybe you're just arrogant or prideful and say, I got nothing wrong uh, with me, <laughs> or greedy or manipulative, whatever it is that has its grip on you, most Christians try to have victory over that through sheer willpower. They try to resist and get, you know, I got to work on this thing and just like, kind of do better. Give an example. I have a friend who has been a closet alcoholic most of his life, just totally candid uh, with you. His wife actually did not know until after they were married. That's when she found out about his drinking problem, major issue. They started going to church. He accepted Christ into his life. He heard, I can have a new life. He accepted Christ into his life. He got baptized. He joined a life group, the whole nine yards. But the booze still had its grip, so it would freak his wife out. And so eventually he said, you know what, that's it. I, I, I'm going to, that's it. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm canceling this thing out. I can stop. I can do this thing. And you know what? He did. He did. He stopped drinking for weeks. He would stop drinking for months on his own power. But then inevitably, at some point, he would break down and binge. 
For, for some of you, maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it is porn or food or shopping, whatever it is. You know what I'm talking about. And on your own willpower, you can be good for a little while. But inevitably, you know it runs out, and you binge, and you go back to whatever that thing is, you crash, and then it's so even worse, because now you feel even worse. <laughs> you feel miserable, you feel like a loser, I said I was going to do better, and you can't stay there, so here's what you've got to do. I've got to muster up the strength again and say, no, no, I can do this, I'm going to do this this time, I'm going to use Jesus, and I'm going to get this thing under control. That's what my friend did every time. And of course, every time he made that promise and tried to quit through sheer willpower, it eroded trust with his wife. You add the booze in and boom! And you wonder why plastic Jesus doesn't seem to change anything. See, the flesh can never be whipped by human effort. That's why we need the Spirit of God. You can't conquer flesh with flesh. You need the Spirit of God. In chapter 7, Paul says this. This is fascinating. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but what? I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. <laughs> you ever feel that way? If you are struggling with any kind of addiction, whether it's physical or chemical or sexual, you can read every book on making a relationship work this time, or I'm going to finally kick the habit. You can actually have every good intention. You can want to change, but you get pulled right back in. It's like the mob. By the way, clinically, that's actually how you, they define insanity. When you keep doing the same thing and expect different results. That's what Paul's describing. Paul writes this. He says, now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Translation, you got rats on board. <laughs> okay? It's called your flesh. And it will gnaw and sabotage your life and take you down unless you take drastic action. It's these two laws battling it out. He actually says, in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but then he says, I see another law at work in the members of my what? My body, my flesh. And here's an interesting phrase. Let's say it together. Doing what? Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. You have a war going on inside. The rats are at a battle on your vessel. And if you fight that battle in your own strength, flesh versus flesh, you will lose every time. That's why resolutions don't work. That's why willpower, positive thinking, none of it can change. You can do temporarily, temporary change, but not for good from the inside out. Paul cries out. He literally cries out in the end of Romans 7. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? A very interesting phrase that Paul invokes here, body of death, it brings to mind a form of capital punishment they used in ancient Rome. If you were condemned to die before they actually executed you, they would take a dead body and strap it to you. And you had to walk through the streets of Rome dragging this corpse behind you. Wherever you went, you dragged a dead body behind you as a way of saying, he's a dead man. <laughs> and Paul's like, that's what life for the Christian is like. When you accept Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, you are not instantly changed. We are forgiven our sins. We are washed clean of every one, the past, the present, the future, but we still drag around our sin nature with us. And in God's eyes, it's dead. That's why in heaven he's given us a whole new body because he's like, the one you have right now, this thing's totaled. But here on earth, we are still stuck in these shells and that causes problems. Everywhere we go, the flesh drags us down. We carry it around with us and Paul's like, it's horrible. Who can free me from the stinking, rotting corpse? That's what he's saying. 
And sometimes, honestly, we cry out for the same thing. We want to experience freedom. We want to experience spiritual power. But our flesh, man, it is like trained, and it is efficient, and it keeps us pinned down, stuck in old habits, enslaving us. That's why we try, I did this early in my Christian life, I would read everything I could on the different things I struggled with, whether it was lustful thoughts, books, articles, counseling, whatever. But we still keep dragging around this old life. And the old lusts kind of bubble up. And we try to get at it, but that anger between husband and wife, it just keeps simmering, just beneath the surface. The selfish attitudes, they don't go away easy. They die hard. Folks, the gospel is not self-improvement. It is spirit empowerment. You understand this. You cannot fight flesh with flesh. Only the Spirit of God has the power to kill your flesh forever. When Paul literally is like, who will rescue me from this body of death? He shouts this at the end of Romans 7. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This battle, this war between spirit and flesh, that's the context here for Romans 8. Okay, Paul's like literally, if you're going to win this war, you have to start counterintuitively by surrendering. Are you willing to surrender to God? I don't mean just ask God to forgive your sins. I'm talking about surrendering every area of your life to the lordship of the living God, Jesus Christ. That is, would you be willing to be honest and give the most wretched, broken, seemingly hopeless parts of your life to Christ and say, I give up. I can't do this anymore. If there is any hope of me being set free, free to fly, my, my addiction's broken, my relationship's mended, it has, to be, it has to be by your spirit because I give up. When a child of God says, I give up, that's when the ears of God perk up because that's when he says, now I can do something. Move aside. When my child says, I don't have what it takes, now I can do something on the inside of your life instead of cosmetics on the outside, plastic Jesus. Surrender changes everything. When you actually admit that willpower is not enough, you gain access to a different kind of power. It is called resurrection power. It's the big gun. Look at verse 11 now, Romans 8, it says this, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who what? Who lives in you. Do you believe that? That the same power God used to resurrect Jesus from the dead is literally inside of you and can be accessed through you, through prayer. Do you believe that? Honestly, if you've been around the block, I think most Christians acknowledge this intellectually. But again, their mind doesn't live out of that reality. When I meet with Christian couples who are kind of intent on getting a divorce all the time, inevitably one says, uh, Tim, uh, Pastor Tim, we tried everything. We don't want to get divorced, but just be honest. They explain the whole deal, and they say, I think it's beyond repair. And honestly, I say, it sure seems that way. That, that is a train wreck. I, I, that, that's... But think about this. Our entire faith is based on the fact that a dead man was raised back to life. And we say, I believe that, but... Um, my marriage, I think, might be bigger than that. Really. You're right. If you don't surrender, he can't help. Surrender means complete and total futility. Where you throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, I can't do this anymore. But I believe you can. So my hands are off. 
Do you believe that the power with which God raised Christ from the dead is available in your struggle with porn, in your battle with negative thoughts, condemning thoughts, with bitterness or jealousy or anger, whatever it is? Man, God can kill that off. He can raise a new life out of this corpse you've been dragging around. Really? Really? Or is your faith in a plastic Jesus? This is how you distinguish between true followers and plastic believers. You need more than a token faith or an hour on Sunday. You actually have to tap into the resurrection power of Christ if you're going to fight for your marriage, or if you're going to conquer your sin, or if you are literally going to get off the ground because you need 70,000 pounds of thrust to lift that dead bird, and you ain't going to generate it yourself. So if you're asking, if you're right now, you're like, dude, that'd be awesome, but how in the world does that happen? I don't know how to fly a plane. How do you access this power? Paul's already mentioned this idea of waging war, but here's the deal. You have to know who you really are in the sight of God. Because although you have to surrender, I've got news, you are not powerless. Not by a long shot. In fact, according to Romans, here, God's word, you are dangerous. It's weird. I'm powerless and I'm dangerous. With the spirit of Christ in you, you are more powerful then you know. This is the twist. This is what Paul writes, verse 12, look with me. He says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation. We've got a new responsibility to this new reality, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. This is well established. We got it. Now watch this. But if by the Spirit, let's read this together, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live because those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. I, I, I I'm guarantee you do not understand the power of what Paul is saying here because I didn't see it myself. I don't get this. But he's like, you really don't know who you are. <laughs> if you did, you would not be limping along through life dragging this thing behind you. You don't know how powerful you are, mainly because you don't know who you are in Christ. If you are being led by the Spirit of God, catch this, you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are a child of the most powerful being in the universe. And as his child, that means you have all the rights, privileges, and, and, and powers afforded a child of the Creator. And one of them is this. You can put to death the misdeeds of the body by whom? By your own muscle. No, by the what? Spirit. You can kill sin. This is very interesting because the, the image Paul uses here is actually of two fighters in a ring in a duel to the death. Who remember, who's ever watched Steel Cage Match? WWF, repent. Come on, who is it? I did it all the time on Channel 9, man. Growing up, man, that was awesome. Sergeant Slaughter. He's like, Steel Cage Match. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Paul's like, with sin, here's how it works. It's kill or be killed. And the image he's giving here is of this little, like, knock-down, drag-out fight to the death. It's like as if I called Pastor Tom in here and said, lock the doors, it's Pastor Tim versus Pastor Tom, mano a mano. Only one of us is getting out of here alive. And it's going to be messy, and it's going to be gruesome, but put your money down, because it's going to be me. There was, I enjoyed that a little too much there. I don't know what that was. That was weird. Paul's point, he's like, if you let this rat live, he will gnaw through the cables and he will bring you down. So by the Spirit, you have to elevate this higher to another level and kill the thing. 
and you will need to discipline yourself as a fighter. You're going to have to envision the knockout blow. And it's like, well, okay, how do I do that practically speaking? Two things. One of the first things is you need to choose paper over plastic. You will need to read God's word for yourself. You will need to actually eat this book. You will need to feed on it. You will need to saturate yourself in the truth of God's word to learn who you are and let his spirit talk to you and nourish you from the inside. You cannot feed off of my energy for an hour on Sunday or some thoughts from just a few other people in your life group and just listen to the radio to fill in the blanks for the rest of the week. You ain't going to live a victorious life. You understand what I'm saying? That's this. Choose paper over plastic. Secondly, you will need to surround yourself with other believers who are in the fight. You are not designed to fly alone. That is one of the most natural lessons we actually learn from the wild goose, right? In nature, everyone knows geese fly in what? A V formation. Did you know there's a practical reason behind that? When they fly together, the entire flock is capable of flying 70% farther than if a goose flew alone solo. 70% farther. Why? Because when they they actually travel on the thrust and the updraft of each other's wings. It's the same with the spiritual life. You are not designed to fly alone. You are not meant to struggle against your sin in isolation. Like my friend's secret sin, right? Just him and his wife and this alcohol thing and they're just kind of struggling alone all over here. That's why God gave us the church, each other. He wanted to give us people actually to share the journey with who are traveling in the same direction and together they can actually travel farther than they ever could on their own. That's why we have life groups. You're not meant to fly alone. Fascinating. Geese. Do you know why geese honk, by the way? I was just, this is amazing, just a little research here. You know why geese honk? It's not all the geese honking. It's just the ones in the back. Only the, the, the four ones in the back are the ones that are honking and they're doing that to encourage the ones who are up front leading to keep pace and not slow down. It's called the gift of encouragement. Accountability. It's one of those gifts God's Spirit gives us in relationship with each other. And finally, this I think is the most interesting thing. When a goose gets sick, when it gets uh, sick or wounded by a gunshot taken down and it falls out, two other geese always peel off in formation and follow him down to help protect him or her. They actually stay with that goose until he is either able to fly or if he actually dies, and then they launch out on their own with another formation until they can join up with their group. Again, lesson from nature. Only in authentic Christian community can we have confidence that when we stumble or crash or fall or go down, we're not going to get left behind or taken out back and shot. At some churches, that's what they do, man. You fall, you stumble, you confess that, they take you out back. Not here. At Liquid, our whole point is that's when we come in with special care and protection and help actually nurse you back to health in the power of God. That's why it's okay to not be okay at our church because we're a club for sinners who are being put back together by the Spirit of God, not just human efforts. So when you struggle against sin, don't fly alone. Travel together. That's part of the thrust of God's Spirit in our lives. He gives us actually power to fly further and farther together. And it's really important to me, when I look at this and think about it, guys, honestly, it's so important, because I just read over this and miss it, the order of, of God's promise here. You don't put sin to death in using your own muscle. It's what? What's the phrase? Let's read it together. It is, by the Spirit you put to death. You cannot force it. It has to come through God's power within you. 
In the spiritual world, change happens from the inside out, not the outside in. And that same power has to come from somewhere deep inside of you. Do you know what that source really is, honestly? It comes from knowing. This is why Paul ends, and this is amazing here. kind of just crescendos here. It comes from knowing who you really are in Christ, in God's eyes. One of the roles the Holy Spirit does is he gives a very deep and knowing confidence of who we are in Christ. Who are we? Look at verse 15. He says this. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. Some of you have been adopted. Some of you have adopted children into your family. In Roman culture, if you were adopted, it was amazing because you literally lost all the rights of your old family and you gained all the rights of a legitimate child of your new family and that's literally what happens when Christ comes into our heart. You are now adopted into God's family and now you enjoy all the same rights and privileges as your brother Jesus. You are now a son of God too, small s. You are now a daughter of God. You are his beloved child. It is this new reality. So in this knockdown, drag-out battle against sin, Paul's like, now you don't have to be scared anymore because you are not receiving a spirit of fear that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the power of sonship. And by him, this is fascinating, throw this up here, this slide, this is amazing. He says, and by him we cry what? Abba, Father. Abba is not just a weird word, it's not just a supergroup from the 70s. Abba is Aramaic for the word daddy. It is tender and it is intimate and it reveals the most trusting, open-handed faith of a child who believes their daddy is bigger than anybody and can kick anybody's butt. Abba. Paul is literally like, this is where the power comes from. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convince you internally of your father's crazy love for you that is so powerful and intimate that you actually open up your hands and say, I'm not scared, I don't feel guilty because God's my daddy. And even when I blow it and I lose battles along the way, I know who I really am. I am fully forgiven. I am fully embraced as a child of God. There's nothing I can do to explain this to you. It is only something you can experience for yourself. I have had those moments in my life of knowing, typically it's when I'm alone just after spending time with God, of knowing deep in my soul and actually experiencing God as my Father. When it would, there are moments, it's not every, I don't wake up by default like this, but there are moments when I have been so convinced of like God's grace, of his affection towards me, that it just blinds everything else. And it's not because I'm a pastor. It's like God literally is saying, you're my son to me. I love you so much. And nothing you ever do or don't do will get me to love you more. So the pressure is off. There are these moments I have with God. This is what he wants for you. And and there are these moments where I say, God, Daddy, do you love everybody this much? I don't think you love the people at church this much. But he does. He does. Do you know what causes those moments 
That's nothing I can generate in myself. It is the Spirit of God who is internally witnessing to your new identity as a child of Christ that allows you to feel that, to actually know that, that God delights in you as his child. And it gives you the sense of security and confidence that allows you to wage war, albeit imperfectly, because now the pressure's off. You're free to fail, and Daddy won't condemn you if you blow it. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you, honestly, the reason you're stuck in the Christian life is because you are carrying around excess baggage. You're carrying around... You, get, you know when you get to the airport and they say, uh, sorry, you packed too much, uh, you got to check that bag. That's actually too heavy. Can't bring that much on the plane. Some of you are carrying around a suitcase full of shame and guilt for like your past sins or something, and, 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 you're, like, and you're like, oh man, but if any, I know I'm forgiven, but if anyone really knew what I got in that, in that steamer trunk, Man, I got more than a handheld, Tim. You don't understand what I've got. These disgusting thoughts invade me every day and I can't do everything. You know what? You want the Spirit's lift off, but you can't when you are grounded with a suitcase load of guilt and condemnation. Some of you need to check that baggage. It's fascinating to me, man. That Airbus, it has a maximum takeoff weight of 580 tons. But you go over 600 tons, that's 1,300,000 pounds. You got problems. That bird ain't gonna fly. Same with you especially if you think God's angry with you. or waving his finger at you, kind of disappointed. Jim's been trying, you know, I, he's my son, I forgive him and all. You're lucky for Jesus, Jim. Whew, man. Got my eye on you, kid. Last week, a young woman wrote on her connection card. She said, God's been speaking to me, I realize it now. Sitting in the service, I've been trying to figure out what is missing in my spiritual life. Listen to this. She says, the signs are clear. I need God's spirit to give me the strength to believe I deserve to be baptized this fall. I'm scared and I always feel intense guilt and the need to be perfect. Please, God, help me to realize my worth so I can be baptized. This is where the battle is for many of you. Look at this. Give me the strength to believe I deserve to be baptized. Newsflash, you don't deserve it. None of us do. Pressure's off here. It is a gift. That's why you get baptized. Because you're saying, I give up, I'm surrendering my life to this certainty that Jesus loves me, this I know. And if he doesn't condemn me, who can? You understand this? She's like, she finishes this, she says, I love you so much, Lord, please help me allow you to love me. Some of us, man, we just like, I want the love of God, but not, I don't know what it's going to... Paul's like, be renewed in your mind. It's not positive thinking. It's no longer caring what others think or feel about you or even what you think or feel about you. It's about what your father thinks and feels about you. And he says, you're my child. And from here on out, there's nothing you do or don't do that will change my love for you because Jesus did everything. There's no condemnation for you. He paid the penalty for every sin on the cross and you are free to fly and you will crash and you will stumble and you will screw up and that's part of the process, but you can take rest. In my infinite love for you, my child, my daughter. I'm getting angry here. His love for you exists outside of your performance. This is critical, guys. Don't miss this. Being filled with God's Spirit does not mean you now live perfectly without sin. We still have temptations. We still will fall short at times. It's just that shame and guilt no longer have their hold on you. You understand? This no longer gets its talons in you. The pressure's off. 
My little girl, five years old, started second grade. She now has weekly spelling quizzes. So she comes home and she says, Daddy, I need you to sign my spelling quiz. I said, sure, sweetheart, what'd you get here? And she gets 10 words every week and she goes, I got an eight out of 10. She looks at me. Now, we've never done spelling quizzes before. I'm like, Chase, that is awesome. Eight out of 10, that's incredible. And she goes, what if I got a seven out of 10? <laughs> and I'm like, sweetheart, I'd still love you. And she goes, what if I got a six out of 10? I'm like, I'm like, I would still love you. She's like, what if I got a three out of 10? I'm like, what are you saying? No, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. That's how you scar a kid. I literally go, Chasey, I would love you with every inch of my heart if you got everyone wrong because my love for you is not based on how you do on a quiz. I love you because you're my daughter. You're my precious, my girl. I love you now and forever. So the pressure's off, kiddo. That's literally what I said to her. And you know what? Can I take the pressure off some of you? Some of you are stuck in your sin honestly because you're trying too hard. And your relationship with God is based on fear, not the Father's affection. You need, God does not condemn you anymore. Why do you condemn yourself? Stop dragging that corpse around. Your past is dead. Can we say that together? My past is dead. Ready? My past is dead. It's over. Jesus is like, I want to bring you to new life. And to do that, you need the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. It's like God's spirit, deep, calls to deep. There's this deep knowing, this internal assurance of God's complete acceptance and embrace of you. Even that, to feel that, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the only one who can testify or convince us on the inside that we really are fully forgiven dearly loved children of God, cleared for takeoff. You are free to fly. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. I thank God for that. That is my prayer for some of you, honestly. Just that on November 22nd, many of you will be baptized, and as you get into that water, you will be supernaturally convinced of Abba's love for you. And out of that love, you will be set free to wage war, to stop the gnawing, and actually have liftoff. The Father has designed you to soar. You are free to fly. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Let's pray right now. Father God, I pray in this moment, there are some people, they identify right now, Father, with this malignant image of you, Father, shaking your finger in judgment. But Lord, you told us in your word that you didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for the gift of complete forgiveness. And I pray right now, Lord, for even more than that, I pray for internal conviction of who we are in Jesus Christ. How much you love us in Abba love, Father, that you are singing over men and women in this room, men and women who are watching online and that your spirit is actually speaking to them, confirming who they are in Christ. We pray for great freedom. We pray that we will get to celebrate, Lord, um, not perfect lives, but ones that are perfectly and supernaturally empowered by the living spirit of your son, Jesus. As you raised him from the dead, Lord, continue to raise us to newness of life in Christ. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.